This Jewish History Podcast is sponsored in honor of a beacon of the Houston Jewish community and a personal friend and a friend of Torch, David Harris. Before I begin, I want to thank all of you who reached out and introduced yourselves to me via email at rabbiwalby.gmail.com and all of those that have taken out the time to post a review of the Jewish History Podcast on iTunes. I'm happy to announce that we have eclipsed 105 star reviews, so thank you so much for that. And of course, thank you to all those who have submitted donations to our organization Torch on our website, torchweb.org, our organization, and of course, the Jewish History Podcast, and all the other amazing podcasts from Torch are only possible and only subsist on your continued support. After the passing of Joshua, the Jewish nation, newly settled in the land of Canaan, the land of Israel, confronted new realities that spawned new challenges. The leadership of the nation was greatly diminished. The future leaders were not of the caliber of Joshua and certainly not of Moses. They were surrounded by various mighty Canaanite enemies who posed existential military and religious threats. They became exposed to new temptations that their antecedents had never encountered. And sadly, at certain junctures, the nation or parts of the nation yielded to these temptations, they sinned, and they were swiftly punished by God for their behavior. But our nation has always been very resilient. And God always sends us the leaders to help us navigate the various challenges that we face in each succeeding generation. And a remarkable group of 15 different leaders, they're called judges, they skillfully led the nation during the three and a half century era known as the era of judges, spanning from Joshua and passing of Joshua until Samuel and the anointing of the first king of Israel, Saul. The nation's ups and downs, the stories of their oppressions and salvations, the accounts of the villains who sought our downfall and the heroes who prevented that, brought us back on track, those stories are told in the book of Judges. That's the subject of this podcast, The Era of the Judges, Part 1, Osniel to Deborah. The era began with new realities. For the duration of the 40 years that the Jewish people spent in the wilderness, that's told in the Torah, the Jewish nation were living a supernatural existence. They were sheltered by God in a spiritual cocoon. They were continually enshrouded by God's clouds of glory. They ate manna that descended from heaven. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 8 how their clothes didn't wear out and actually grew with them. Their legs didn't swell. And of course, they're led by Moses, the greatest prophet of all time. He has a direct connection to God. Prophecy is at the nation's fingertips. All their physical needs are addressed by God in a miraculous fashion. And their focus and their attention is all available to pursue spiritual aims. In Jewish literature, the generation of those 40 years in the wilderness is called the Dordea, the generation of knowledge, because that's what they did. For 40 years, our nation was a virtual Torah academy. The entire nation focused solely 
on study of Torah, on pursuit of spiritual aims, under the tutelage of the greatest teacher of them all, under Moses. After Moses passes, Joshua is a worthy successor. Of course, Joshua is not Moses, but there's a certain continuity that is unbroken from Moses to Joshua. Our sages tell us that Moses was like the sun and Joshua was like the moon, meaning that there was an intimate relationship between Moses and Joshua and a certain continuity between the two. Joshua reflected the light of Moses. But after the passing of Joshua, the real challenges awaited. Of course, the moon, Joshua is incomparable to the sun, but each of them are their own constellation that stands on their own. After the sun and the moon, all you have is a general term, generically, the stars collectively. There's not going to be a single leader to lead the Jewish people in the format of Joshua, and of course not Moses, not until the arrival of Messiah. Our nation is going to be living in the land, and they're not going to have the ability to spend all the time studying Torah. They're going to dedicate huge portions of their time towards agriculture, tending and tilling the field, plowing when it's time to plow, planting their gardens, their fields, the granary, their vineyards, of course, tending to all the needs of the agrarian society in which they lived, the idyllic utopia of being capable of focusing entirely on spiritual matters is no longer feasible. In addition, no longer are they surrounded just by other Jews. They had these clouds bifurcating them from the rest of the people around them. All they had were friendlies. Now the remnants of the pagan Canaanite neighbors are going to pose grave challenges. Now it's important to stress that these challenges were known ahead of time. If you read essentially the entire book of Deuteronomy is dedicated towards preparing the Jews for the challenges that they're going to face once they enter and conquer and settle the land of Canaan. And in fact, there are Torah rules oriented around either sidestepping or at a minimum mitigating these challenges. So for example, there's all these agricultural laws related to the Jewish ownership of the land. And these are designed to make sure the Jewish people don't get too bogged down with agricultural pursuits and forget about what they're really there for. And hopefully they'll maintain their true allegiances to God. Yes, the nation is going to possess the land, but it's not going to be fully conquered. There's going to be various remnants of Canaanite control, and they're going to be constantly reminded of the fact that it's really not their land, it's it's God's land. And... Therefore, God could move them from the land at will should they stray. So, for example, there's a law in the Torah that applies to the Jewish people's ownership of the land in Israel, that Jews in Israel, slash Canaan, they're only allowed to sell their real estate on a temporary basis. Every sale of real property was, in effect, a lease until the Yovel, until the Jubilee, which came every 50 years. After 50 years, a maximum of 50 years, the land was returned to the original owner or his descendants. 
why did God command the Jewish people that specifically when they get into Canaan, their ownership of the land is not sufficient that they could sell it to someone else? So we read in Leviticus 25, but the land must not be sold beyond reclaim for the land is mine. God reminds the Jewish people it's mine. You are but strangers, residents dwelling with me. And that idea is a very powerful idea. You're in the land, you conquer the land, but remember, it's God's land. And if it's God's land, you are subject to his conditions for you to stay there. Of course, every seven years, the year, there is the Shemitah year in which the land lies fallow. There's no agricultural work to be done. And again, it's reminding them, you're not the owners, God is. And in fact, the idea behind this is that total ownership of the land would create another barrier between the Jewish people and God. And therefore, they didn't get total ownership. And in fact, the Levites, which is the tribe designated for total devotion to God, they didn't even have partial ownership of the land. They were constantly in flux. They didn't have their own land that was apportioned to them because they, more than anyone else, needs to remember God and not get too consumed with agriculture. Moreover, the Jewish people are going to be very wealthy in the land of Canaan. And this great wealth is also another factor that may contribute towards waywardness. And of course, we read in Deuteronomy, Chapter 8, Hashem your God is bringing you to a good land, a land that has streams and springs and fountains emanating from the plain, from the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines, figs, pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land with tremendous, robust produce and pasture, a land where you may eat food without poverty, you're going to lack nothing, a land whose rocks are iron and whose hills you can mine copper land bursting with natural resources. What's going to be, continues Deuteronomy, you've eaten your fill. Don't forget, give thanks to God for the good land which he had given you. And then there's a very stern warning. Take care, lest you forget Hashem your God by not observing his commandments, his ordinances, and his decrees, which I command you today. You're going to eat You're going to be satisfied. You're going to build good houses. You're going to settle down. You're going to have lots of sheep and cattle and goats. You're going to have lots of gold and silver. Everything you'll have will increase. Your heart will become haughty and you'll forget God. You'll forget God who takes you out of the land of Egypt and does all these miracles for you. And it continues listing all the tremendous miracles that God did for the Jewish people. And in verse 19, we read, It shall be that if you forget Hashem your God... And go after the gods of others. Again, this is Moses warning the people, they're still in the wilderness. They haven't gotten the land of Canaan. They haven't conquered it. They haven't settled it. But he's warning them way ahead of time what they're going to face. If you forget Hashem your God and go after the gods of others and worship them and prostrate yourself to them, I testify against you that you will surely perish like the nations that Hashem caused to perish before you, just like the Canaanites, or the majority of the Canaanites are going to be perished, are going to be destroyed. You too will will perish just like them because you have not hearkened to the voice of Hashem, your God. Everyone knew ahead of time what they're going to face. They're going to be tremendous temptations, tremendous challenges, and dire consequences for disobedience, for straying away from the path that God sets them upon. And that's really how the book of 
judges begins. It's going to begin with a survey of the land of Canaan and the parts that were conquered and the parts that were not yet conquered. And essentially, the entire book is going to be grappling with the challenges, with the upheavals, with the tumultuousness, with the fighting that's going to happen between the Jews and the Canaanites. But underneath it all, it's really this point. The Jewish people and their spiritual level is going to affect what's going to happen with them and their neighbors. So the book begins, and it was after the death of Joshua, the Israelites, the Jews, inquired of Hashem, which of us shall be the first to go up against the Canaanites and attack them? Though the majority of the Canaanite nations were submitted to Joshua and the Jews in the book of Joshua, there were still vast portions unconquered, and we begin the book of Judges, asking God, okay, which of the tribes should go attack the Canaanites first? So God responded, let the tribe of Judah ascend. I will deliver the land into their hands. These are the first two verses of the book of Judges. And I think these two verses show us a bit more about the state of the nation at the time. For one, like we mentioned, the Canaanites were not fully conquered in the times of Joshua. And as we all know, the hardest part of any job is that last 5%. You did all the hard work and then you're exasperated, you're done, you're spent, and there's still more work to do. And you have to really muster up the courage and the energy and the strength to finish the job. Here we have 5% or maybe a small sliver, but a significant portion, a significant contingency that could grow and could swell into becoming a real problem. The nation had already engaged in seven years of war with the Canaanites under Joshua. They were spent. Most of the tribes had sufficient land for the populations. And the public will for ongoing wars was sapped. So remnants of the Canaanite resistance remained. Now Joshua's passed. And there's a renewed effort to go finish up the job. And therefore, the question is, which tribe should attack first? And I think this tells us about a second development that we see shifted from the book of Joshua to the book of Judges. The nation is no longer a single fighting force under one command. The nation had become a little bit decentralized, a little bit fragmented into tribal identities. It wasn't a question of which Canaanites should we all attack together. Which tribe should go attack the Canaanite remnants that are in the land allotted to them? A single tribe, perhaps bolstered with reinforcements from other tribes, they're going to go wage war for its allotted territory and... All the other tribes are going to do it for their territory, but they're all, they're all going to fight alone. And in fact, we're going to read in chapter one about the wars of many of the tribes, and some of them are victorious, and some of them are not. And this is yet another negative development since the times of Joshua. Joshua, yes, there were some problems with the conquest of Ai, as we spoke about in previous episodes, but every war was successful eventually. And here, there's going to be some war, some wars and some battles that are won and some, sadly, that are lost. So, for example, Judah ascends. 
together with reinforcements from the tribe of Shimon. And they're successful in waging war with the kingdom of Bezek. They conquer the 10,000-strong army. They defeat them. They capture the king. His name was Adoni Bezek. And they cut off his thumbs and big toes. And they do that in order to frighten the other Canaanite enemies. And the first war is victorious. But I think it's also interesting. It's kind of like a snapshot. Uh, Our sages tell us that the reason why they cut off his thumbs and bit toes was because he had done that to 70 other nations that he had conquered. He had conquered 70 other kingdoms, and each one of them, you would cut off the thumbs and the bit toes of his enemies. And the first enemy, the first antagonist that the Jews are facing is someone who himself had conquered 70 other nations. That war was successful. But other efforts were not successful. And the consequences of the incomplete conquest is going to play out throughout the rest of the book. The nation is going to suffer at the hands of a host of these unconquered Canaanite nations. And finally, the the very first verses of the book of Judges signals at the decline of the nation in the way the question was posed to God. Again, the question was, which tribe shall ascend to fight the Canaanites? How was this question communicated to God? It doesn't tell us that one of the prophets, and remember Joshua's past, who's communicating, who's asking God? The answer is that this is the first time in history that the Urim and the Tumim was used as a means for prophecy. You may ask, what is the Urim and the Tumim? Well, we read... Exodus chapter 28, when they were constructing the garments for the high priest, and there's, of course, eight garments for the high priest that they wore in the temple and earlier in the tabernacle, there was a garment called the Choshen HaMishpat, which means the breastplate of judgment, and that went on the chest of the high priest. It was square, and it had 12 stones, and each one of the stones was etched one of the names of the tribes of Israel. But we read that it had a back flap. And in that back flap, they stuck in the Urim and the Tumen. Of course, all the commentaries debate exactly what this was. But the consensus is that in that flap, there was a special parchment in which the name of God was written. But it's somewhat mysterious exactly how it was was done. Was it the four-letter name of God? Was it the 72-letter name of God? Regardless, this was another vehicle for prophecy. And the way this would work is when people would have a dilemma, not just any any individuals, but a king, a leader of the Jewish people, or the nation at large, they would go to the high priest and they would ask the question to the high priest. Now, the high priest would be facing the opposite direction. He would be facing the ark in the tabernacle, and his back would be to the questioner. And the questioner would ask the question, he would not whisper it, but not say it out loud, kind of that intermediate stage where only he could hear it and the high priest cannot hear it. And then various parts of the front part of the breastplate would light up. Letters would light up. And this would kickstart a low level of prophecy wherein the high priest would also be a great pious person, but also a prophet, at least a prophet on this level, 
would be able to determine the question. And from the letters that illuminate in the breastplate would be able to get know the answer. So there's essentially two parts of this prophecy in that the message would come via illumination of the letters. But once the letters are illuminated, it's the job of the prophet, it's the job of the high priest to be able to decrypt, to decipher the message because it's, it could be a whole mumble jumble of letters and they have to put the letters in the correct order to get the message. So they ask the question to God, well, which tribe should ascend first? And then the entire stone that has the name Judah, the tribe of Judah, illuminates, plus the letters Ya'ale will ascend. And therefore, they knew that the prophet, that the tribe of Judah, that they're the first one to engage in warfare with the Canaanites after the passing of Joshua. Now, to us, this sounds pretty cool. It's like a Morse code. God's given you Morse code prophecy to the answer to your very grave dilemma. But for them, it was really a downgrade. No longer did they have a leader with a direct line of prophecy. Moses was gone. Joshua had passed. And the nation had to resort to a lower level of prophecy to find divine guidance. So after detailing the various successful and unsuccessful campaigns against the Canaanites in chapter 1, chapter 2 really sets the tone for the rest of the book. And it's going to reveal a certain pattern, a certain cycle that repeats itself again and again throughout the centuries and throughout the book of Judges. And it begins, And the people served the Lord, served Hashem all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders, Joshua's peers, who outlived Joshua, and all those who had seen the amazing miracles that God had done from Israel. And Joshua, son of Nun, passed away, and they buried him in the border of his inheritance, in the mountain of Ephraim. And also all the elders had passed away as well. And there arose another generation after them who knew not the Lord, nor the works which he had done for Israel. Simply put, we read this beginning of chapter 2 here. The righteous nation of Joshua had passed on, and a new rebellious nation arose. And we read further, And the people of Israel did evil in the eyes of God, and they served the Baalim, they served idols, and they forsook Hashem, God of their forefathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods, and the gods of the people who were around them. They were influenced by their Canaanite neighbors. They prostrated themselves to them. They provoked the anger of God. They forsook God, and they served Baal and the Ashtaroth, which is another one of the idols. And the sages point out that there is various levels of this spiritual decline. Initially, the people did evil in the eyes of God. They started violating the commandments. The next stage of their spiritual devolvement is they started following idolatry. But they didn't abandon God. They didn't abandon the God of their forefathers. It just they tried to worship God in conjunction with other idols. And finally, there was even a contingent of the Jewish people that abandoned God entirely. And they went to serve the foreign gods, the gods of the Canaanites, and they descended into idolatry. 
like God promised, there were swift consequences. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he delivered them in the hands of destroyers who destroyed them. And he sold them into the hands, into the hands of their enemies around, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. As an immediate consequence, their enemies are emboldened and are victorious. Wherever they went out, the hound of God was against them for evil. As God had said and as God had sworn to them, this was not something that came out of left field, and they were greatly distressed. Now, it's interesting that all the commentaries note that this is kind of a generic description of everything that happened because this happened multiple times. Again, descent into idolatry and then oppression on the hands of the newly emboldened Canaanite oppressors and enemies. And God raised up judges who saved them from the hands of those who oppressed them. And it goes on to outline that there were certain judges whose effect upon the Jewish people was so complete, they restored them, they brought them back as penitents, they brought them back to God and back to Torah and away from the Canaanites, that as soon as they did that, and the judges also fulfilled the role of military leaders as well, a judge was kind of similar to a king in that they really held all of the keys of leadership. The only There are several differences, of course. You know, a king is anointed, for example, judge is not, and judge primarily is an extension of the court, whereas the king, well, that's part of, part of the monarchy, and their role as chief justice is ancillary. But regardless, that's the role that they played. They led the Jews in war, and they restored the Jews spiritually. Some of them, for the duration of their lives, once the judge was appointed, not only did they right the ship, did they win the war with the various Canaanite oppressive enemies, but once they brought the Jewish people back, so long as they were alive, there was such an inspiration to their co-religionists that the people did not descend back into ways of idolatry. Others, remember there's a list of 15 judges, so some of them were greater than others. Others, well, they managed to temporarily halt the assault and restore the equilibrium from what had happened with the Canaanites, but then the Jews slipped again. And therefore, there were certain, there was, there was variety in the effectiveness of the judges. And continues the verse. So what happens? Sometimes the judges are successful, and then when they die, the Jewish people slip back into their idolatrous ways. So essentially, that's the state of the Jewish people for almost 400 years from the passing of Joshua until the arrival of Samuel the prophet. And that's going to kickstart the next era, the era of kings, the era of monarchy. And again, the cycle is going to follow itself uh, a dozen times. They're going to sin. They're going to follow the ways of the Canaanites. They're going to be oppressed because God's going to embolden the Canaanites. They're going to pray. God's going to grant them salvation by the hands of the judge. And there's going to be a period of respite. Some of them is going to be longer. Some of them is going to be shorter. And then eventually Jewish people are going to resume their sinful ways, either in the life of the judge or after the judge had passed, and the cycle repeats itself, oppression, until they pray again, they get saved again, and that repeated itself many, many times throughout the book. Now, I think it's important to stress that, you know, if we were to just read this book, we say, hey, you know, we're better than those people. They do idolatry. We would never consider doing that. 
it's important to remember that their sinfulness is relative to their supreme stature. And there's a major misconception about the era of the judges. It's presented falsely, I would say, as a time of tremendous disorder, of chaos, a time of anarchy. And the reason why it's presented as such, because if you read the story simply, that's what emerges. And in fact, twice we're told, by Amimahim in those days, there was no king amongst the Jewish people. Ish hayashar each person de- did as they pleased. It seems to imply that there was anarchy. There's rampant sin, there's disobedience, there's no team, there's no one to kind of set the tone and keep the people in check. But the truth is, during this era, the reason why there was no king is because they didn't need it. This was a nation to whom God was the real ruler. The people viscerally felt his presence and did not need human oversight. And in the story, as they're told, the sins are accentuated. You have to remember, the book of Judges was written by Samuel, and he's recounting 400 years of of history, but it's not written as a book of history. It's written, like all the books of the prophets, it's written to encourage the Jewish people to repent. And therefore, the sins are always going to be exaggerated and accentuated But the absolute majority of the time, it was dominated by self-governance. The people did not have a king. They didn't need a king because even without centralized authority and centralized oversight, they were living in a proper way. And in fact, I would say even until this day, that's one of the hallmarks of our nation. Uh, Today, Jews are governed by the laws of the Torah. We don't have a Jewish king. We don't have a Sanhedrin enforcing Jewish law, yet millions of Jews are still obeying the laws of the Torah. Why? What are they scared of? Well, they're scared of God. And there's a great episode that happened more than a thousand years after the beginning of the book of Judges with the emperor Hadrian. This is in the second century of the Common Era. And he had a discussion with one of the great leaders of the Jewish people at the time, Rabbi Joshua, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah, who was the greatest diplomat amongst the sages of his time. And there's many examples in Jewish literature of, of dialogues that he had with various, mostly Roman emperors and the like. So there's a discussion here brought down in the Midrash. Hadrian tells Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah, he says, well, I am greater than Moses. Because I'm alive, and Moses has passed. And don't we always say, in quotes of verse, it's better to have a living dog than a dead lion. I am better than Moses. So he says, okay, is that, is that so? Let, let, let's see if that's indeed true. So the rabbi tells him, okay, I want you to make a rule that people cannot light a fire in their home for three days. He says, okay. So he institutes a rule. The emperor Hadrian has hereby decreed no one can make a fire in their home for three days. And they went to see the results. So Rabbi Yeshua Hananiah and the emperor, they go onto the roof of the palace 
and they look around, and they see smoke coming out of furnaces. And the rabbi turns to the emperor and tells him, do you still think that you're greater than Moses? Moses, 1,500 years ago, tells the Jewish people not to make a fire in their homes on Chavez. And until this day, Moses has been dead for 1,500 years. But Jews obey those rules. You're alive. You just made this new decree. And look around. Look how many chimneys are spewing smoke. And I think this, this, this is really the point. One of the characteristics that has accompanied our nation throughout our history. Ultimately, the ruler that is on top of all of us is God. We obey his commandments and we are fearful of his retribution and we don't have humans or human systems to keep us in check. We didn't have it then and we don't have it now. And you know what? We still obey uh, the instructions of God because ultimately that's what we stand for. The era of the judges is when that was blown out to previously not seen scales. The whole nation was a nation that was governed entirely by God, but entirely self-governed. And, you know, today in America, we are governed by American law. And everywhere else that we are, we're governed by the common law of the country. There, the Jewish people constituted the majority of the land of Canaan, and there was no government, really. There's no, who's in charge? What's going to be? How do we know that people are not going to behave terribly? So the answer is, is that, well, they had God ruling them, and they didn't need a king. And yes, sometimes they abused that, and there were certain times they kind of stepped out of line, and therefore we do read about the in the book that they were criticized for it, and they were shown the consequences of it. But over the course of, of, of history, or at least the history of the book of Judges, they were able to actually live by the very high moral standard. And that lasted, like we said, for hundreds of years until, of course, eventually their capacity for self-governance diminished and they had to appoint a king. But for the duration of this time, in aggregate, with the exception of several episodes that we'll hear about next time, that sullied the pristine righteousness of the era – and that is, of course, the image of Micha, which the nation kind, kind of did slip into idolatry. And the very tragic episode of the concubine of Giva, besides for those two episodes, the majority of the time was uninterrupted, continuous piety and righteousness. That said, there were times we did slip relative to our greatness, and immediately it kick-started that cycle of judges bringing us back to the place where we need to be. So with this backdrop, we read about the first judge, Osniel ben Kanaz. He is the younger brother of Caleb. He actually married Caleb's daughter. He was, it seems like they were half-brothers. And he was the greatest Torah scholar of his age. And in fact, the Talmud tells us that when Moses passed, they forgot a whole host of laws in the mourning period of Moses and they were restored by Osniel ben Kanaz, by the first of the judges, with the force of his deductive capacities, he's able to restore those laws. 
But the nation does descending, and we're going to kick into this this pattern. The people of Israel lived amongst the Canaanites. This is chapter 3. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, these are various Canaanite nations. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and they gave their daughters to their sons. They didn't maintain that stark division to realize that, no, they're, they're different, and they served their gods. And the people of Israel did evil in the eyes of Hashem. They forgot Hashem, their God, and they served the Baalim. Therefore, what happens? Again, as predicted in chapter 2, the anger of God burned against them, and he sold them to the hands of Cushim Rishasayim, king of Mesopotamia. The people of Israel served him for eight years. Eight years, the people are suffering under the impression of Cushim Rishasayim, and then there is a rebirth under Osniel ben Kenaz, the first judge of Israel. When the people cried out to Hashem, God raised up for them a savior who saved them, Osniel ben Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the spirit of God came upon him. He judged Israel and he went to war. Again, the dual responsibilities. He's responsible on one hand to judge spiritually and he went to war. He was also the commander-in-chief of the Jews leading them in war against their enemies. And they were victorious. They prevailed. They won. And the land was quiet for 40 years. And then Osnil Makanaz died. This is typical. You have 40 years of respite, 40 years with no wars. Implicitly in that, 40 years with no sinning and therefore no oppression. But of course, the pattern repeats itself. After Osniel dies, the people of Israel did evil again in the eyes of Hashem. And God strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they went away from the ways of God. And he makes alliances with the Ammonites and with Amalek and he begins to oppress the Jews and they have to serve him for 18 years. And again, they're suffering. They call out to God. God gives them a leader that's going to lead them out of this depressing situation, and that is Ehud, the next one of the judges. And in chapter 3, verse 15, we start reading about a very dramatic account of the assassination of the enemy of the Jews, of this king of Eglon. The children of Israel cried out to Hashem, and Hashem set up for them a savior, Ehud ben Gera, a Benjaminite, a man with a withered right hand, which is another way of saying that he was a lefty. Why that is significant, we'll see in a second. Ehud made himself a sword with two sharp edges, the length of a cubit, and he hid it in his right thigh. And the reason for that is, is that people draw their sword from the weaker side. So if you're righty, you would put the sword on your left hip, because that way you could draw it with the right hand. Whereas if it's on your right hip, it's somewhat awkward to draw. And therefore, he was a lefty, so he would put his sword on his right side. And therefore, if he were to have a meeting with the enemy, and they want to check him for weapons, they'll check him where they're expected to find him. That's the left side. No one would think that this guy would be a lefty, and therefore, they forgot to look at his right side. And that's very significant for what's going to happen. So he made himself a sword, 
and he brings a tribute. Remember, they, they have uh, their overlords now is the Moabites and Eglon, their king. And he brings a gift for the king of Moab, Eglon, who was a very tumescent, obese man. And he offers him the tribute. And then he tells him, oh, I have a very special secret I need to tell you that comes from God. We can't have all these people in the room. It's just me and you. And of course, Eglon is totally unsuspecting of any foul play here. So he says, okay, everyone else, get out of here. And the room empties and they go to a special room. It's the cool upper chamber. And Ehud says to Eglon, I have a word of God for you. And he stands up in his chair. And I say, just tell us, just parenthetically, Eglon, this brutal king who is the enemy, who is the villain, he hears that Ehud has a word from God. What does he do? He stands up in honor, in deference to the word of God. I say, just tell us, who were Eglon's descendants? Ruth, who is, of course, a Moabite convert, she's a direct descendant of Eglon. Why did Eglon merit to have Ruth, who's the forbearer of David and of Messiah? Why did he merit to have her as his descendants? Because he showed honor for the word of God, even though he was a dictator and an autocrat and someone who oppressed the Jewish people, but he had some redeeming qualities, and therefore he merited having Ruth as his descendants. So the room's empty. It's just Ehud with his secret sword on his right side, and now he's got the king cornered. Ehud then stretched out his left hand, took the sword from upon his right thigh, and thrust it into Eglon's belly. Even the hilt of the sword went after the blade, and in uh, maybe details that we didn't necessarily need to know, the fat closed around the blade. He couldn't pull the sword out, and excrement poured out of his belly. He stabbed him so deeply, ruptured all his intestines, couldn't even pull out the sword it was in so deep, and he killed the tyrant, the enemy of the Jewish people. And then, of course, he slips out. He locks the door behind him. He tells the people, okay, uh, your master, the king, Dadlon, he needs some time by himself. They're scared to go disrupt him because he maybe's in the bathroom. Who knows? By the time they open up and they find the carnage and the corpse, uh, Ehud is long gone. He travels out. He rallies the Jewish people. He says, okay, they're vulnerable now. Their king is dead. They're going to be in a very chaotic a situation, they close off the crossings of the Jordan. Of course, Moab is on the eastern bank of the Jordan. They engage in war. They find them when they're very vulnerable. They attack and they slew Moab, about 10,000 men. All of them, we're told, were very lustful at the time. All of them were men of valor. Not a single man escaped. And again, the great leader, the great judge, Ehud, was able to subdue Moab. Again, peace and quiet and tranquility reigned, this time not for 40 years, this time for 80 years. And again, this is a tremendous testament to the piety of the people at the time. For 80 years, there was no sinning and therefore no concomitant oppression. Uh, we read about another one of the 
Judges Shamgar, and he has a much more minor role. He's battled the Philistines, but that's only one sentence we're told about him. And finally, we read about Deborah, who was the third judge, and she is, in fact, a female. And which is interesting because, you know, we say that we've been egalitarian before it was cool. So uh, I find it interesting that, uh, you know, the state of Israel had a female prime minister uh, before it was in vogue, and the Jewish people as a nation collectively had a female leader who was the military again and Torah leader as our judge. She was very learned. She was a great scholar. She was an arbitrator between people who had disputes. And she, together with Barak, were the two leaders of the people at the time. But again, the pattern repeats itself. The children of Israel continued to do what was evil in the eyes of Hashem once Ehud died. And God delivered them into the hands of Yavin, the king of Canaan. He reigned in Chatzor, and he had a general in his army named Sisra. Sisra was a very mighty warrior, and they had a very well-equipped army with 900 iron chariots, is the functional equivalent of a tank. And he oppressed the children of Israel forcefully for 20 years. And Deborah is this time going to lead the charge against Yavin and his general Sisra and save the Jews. Once again, the pattern is going to repeat itself for a third time. Meanwhile, we're told about Deborah. She's a prophetess. And her her husband's name is Lapidos, which also can be read as her husband was very fiery. The word Lapid means torch. And she was the wife of the torch, or the, she, she, maybe she was very fiery. All the commentaries trying to figure out what that means. And the Talmud and, and, and the Midrash tells us kind of quizzically, like, wait a minute, we have a woman here. She's the judge. 3,000 years ago, we're, we're led by, by a woman. At the time, we know that Pinchas Phineas is still alive. What's the meaning behind that? And the Midrash reports something very powerful. It says, I testify let heaven and earth be my witness. If there is a Jew, or if there is a non-Jew, if there is a man, if there is a woman, if there is a free person, if there is a slave, it doesn't matter. If there is someone who makes themselves worthy via their behavior, via their character, worthy of prophecy, right away, prophecy will descend upon them. Devorah, she's a woman. You know what? She's qualified. This is a meritocracy. Spirituality, according to Judaism, is a meritocracy. She was worthy. She was worthiest, and therefore she became the leader. Ironically, her husband was not a great scholar. And one of the reasons why she's called the wife of Lapidos, the wife of the fiery one, because he was a very unsophisticated or not scholarly man. And she told him, why don't you go to the temple? Again, there wasn't a temple. It was just a tabernacle all the time in the, in the land, in the city of Shiloh, Shiloh. You are not the great scholar, but you know what? You could go offer something to the tabernacle. And he made wicks for the menorah. And he said, I'm going to make them extra thick so they have a very nice light. And therefore, she became known as the wife of Lapidos, the wife of the fiery one, because he contributed to make the, the lights of the menorah shine very brightly. And uh, so now we have an enemy. We have Yavin, 
the king of Canaan from Chatzor, his mighty general Sisra, and they are unopposed. But she's going to propose, okay, it's time for us to go battle with them. She summons Barak, who, according to some opinions, might have been her husband or maybe not. She says to them, okay, gather for me 10,000 men. We're going to go and draw the enemy towards this brook called Kishon. We're going to get Sisra, the general of the army, all his chariots, all the multitudes, and then God's going to deliver him to our hands and we're going to beat them. So Barak is a little bit not so gung-ho about this, but he says, you know what? If you come with me, we're a tag team, then I'll go. Otherwise, I'm I'm not going to go. Okay? So she joins Barak and Devorah and 10,000 men. They're going to square off against this mighty army of Yavin headed by the fearsome Sisra. We're told some very uh, hyperbolic descriptions of his might. His beard, the Talmud says, when he would go dipping into the water, it was so big and muscular, even his beard was muscular, that fish would get caught up in it, which is a very strange way to describe him. But it says that when he would scream, people would freeze. He was only 30 years old, but conquered the, the, the majority of the world. He was a very fearsome warrior, and he's facing off these 10,000 Jews. He's got 900 chariots, and they didn't even have sufficient functional weapons. But this is going to be a very miraculous victory for the Jews because they were indeed worthy of it. So Sisra finds out that Barak is facing off, swearing off against him in battle, and he's fired up. Another opportunity to squash the Jews. So he gets his 900 chariots, and the people are with him, and the battle begins. And Hashem confounds Sisra, we read, and all the chariots and the entire camp by the edge of the sword before Barak. Miraculously, the nation of the Canaanites become confounded and the Jews win. Sisra dismounts his horse and his chariots and he flees on foot. And then Barak is pursuing the rest of the chariots. And eventually they all are captured and they all are swiftly destroyed. Now, we're also told here that they had iron staves. This is a very advanced weaponry, but the Talmud tells us what actually happened. Meteorites descended from heaven, which is similar to a description of wars that were happening in the times of, of Joshua. Meteorites hit the weapons. The weapons became so burning hot that they had to cool it down to drop it into that brook that was there. And then a flash flood came and swept away all the weapons and the people were left without any weapons and totally vulnerable and they were easily mopped up. Sisra, now the mighty warrior, he's lost all his army and he's running on foot and he sees a tent of Yael the wife of Hever the Canite. Now, who are these Canites? They are descendants of Yisro. So they're kind of part of the Jewish people, but they're not biologically part of the Jewish people. And they were allies with Yavin, the king of Chatzor. So he sees this woman and she says, okay, I'll shelter you. Come here, just hide in my tent. And later on, we find out that she actually seduced him as well. So he's under the impression that she's one, she's, that she's allied with, with him. 
he goes into her tent. She covers him with a blanket. He says to her, okay, give me some water to drink. I'm very thirsty. She gives him some milk and she gives him to drink. She covers him and he tells her, he says, okay, you stand at the entrance of the tent and if anyone's looking for me, you just say, no, there's no one here and they'll go on. She says, no problem. So he's fast asleep. He's exhausted. He's exhausted, A, from the war, B, from the seductions of Yael, C, perhaps from the milk that he got to drink, and she realizes that he's vulnerable. She takes the peg of the tent, she takes a hammer, and stealthily, quietly walks up to him. He's totally sleeping, totally out. She takes the peg, puts it on his temple, smashes it in with the hammer, and he is dead. There's a large metal peg thrust into his skull. Meanwhile, Barak and the rest of the Jewish army are finished with their battle, and they're all scouting, looking for Sisera. They want to finish him off. She calmly walks out and tells Barak, I got your man. They walk into the room, and they see him dead, killed by Yael, killed by a woman. Our sages tell us that Yael, even though she was a married woman, she seduced Sisera, and that was almost permitted, even though it was a sin. After all, she's a married woman. But this, says the Talmud, this is the archetype of an Aver Lashma. This is a sin done with the proper intentions, done essentially as an act of war, just like in war, you're allowed to kill the enemy. We, we don't kill, but if it's the enemy, you're allowed to do it. Just like on Shabbos, if, you know, if there's a need to save a life, certain laws are discarded because of the objective, which is so pressing. She was able to seduce him, and she is lauded as a great heroine of Jewish history, together with Devorah, the victory of the women over Yavin and Sisra. There is an interesting postscript to the story. Uh, first of all, we read this story in chapter 4, but part of the story is also told, or more details of the story are also told in chapter 5, the chapter known as Shiras Devorah, the Song of Devorah. Just like when the Jewish people, after the splitting of the sea, it was such an amazing miracle, they erupted into spontaneous song after this highly improbable and miraculous victory over the Canaanites, and, of course, that final blow, no pun intended, that put away Sisra, the nation led by Devorah, again responded with spontaneous song. There is another interesting element, too, that we read in the end of chapter 5. There's a shout-out to Sisra's mother. Really interesting. Sisra's mother is aware, of course, of the battle. And she's waiting for her son to come home. Through the window she gazed, Sisra's mothers peered through the window. Why is his chariot delayed in coming? Why are the hoofbeats of his carriage so late? She's not used to this. The war is supposed to be over, and he's supposed to be winning. Are they not finding any loot? Devorah is kind of mocking and, and, and taunting Sisra's mother. You're waiting for your son. He ain't coming back. And the chapter ends. So may all your enemies be destroyed, O Hashem, and let all those who love you 
be like a powerfully rising sun after the destruction of Sisera and his army and his and his 900 iron chariots the land was tranquil for 40 years we're told also in the talmud this is something maybe a subject for lots of pondering maybe in a different setting that the descendants of sisra also converted and studied torah in benebrak and this seems to indicate that the great Rabbi Akiva, who we know was a descendant of converts, actually may have descended from Sisra, which is very interesting. And it probably has a lot of deep meaning. The land was tranquil for another 40 years, but that's not the end of the story. That's the end of chapter 5. There's going to be many more ups and downs uh, throughout the book of Judges. Again, I think it's important to stress that there's a misconception of the era in general, it was a time of widespread righteousness, though they, they were facing new challenges. And there were some slip-ups that called for judges to lead the people through the oppressions of, of their neighbors. But still, it's a time in general of great piety and righteousness, though grave days lie ahead. There's going to be more judges, some other major missteps, and eventually – the leadership structure is going to be altered with the appointment of a king and the closing and the sealing of the era of the judges. And stay tuned for part two, the era of the judges from Gidon, who is the next one of the judges that we meet, until Samuel.